0: Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. I am Lucas Mack. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Thank you for being the light in this world. Thank you for being someone who is standing in the gap, holding space for others to heal, which includes yourself. And speaking of healing, speaking of standing in the gap and speaking of holding space, brothers and sisters, today I get to bring, I have the pleasure of bringing, okay, Larry Knapp to the podcast. I met Larry um, at a plant medicine ceremony, an incredible man. And he looked at me and I looked at him like, who are you? He looked at me like, who are you? We shook hands and it was so beautiful and powerful. And Larry is a former race car driver. He's going to get into this and goes from race car driving, living this incredible life, has a patent um, for race car driving, something with the, the motor m- machinery of race cars to going into federal prison and the journey. And he explains this journey to coming out of prison and truly embarking on this journey, this purpose, this, this calling to heal. And when he and I met was just incredible. And this story is incredible. And I'm really excited to bring Larry. His very first podcast interview, his very first public speaking interview um, to the world. And so, brothers and sisters, I honor you. And, brother Larry, I honor you. Thank you for coming on, and everyone, enjoy. So, everyone, like I mentioned in the intro, there are certain people you come across in life where they just, you just know these are soul family. This is soul family. And Larry is one of those uh, people in my life, men brother, um, and friend who, when we shared, you know, when you, it's Larry, when, when you journey together, there's deep connection. There's the, you see someone's raw vulnerability and and honesty. And, and I just thank you for coming on. And, and I'm so excited to have you and hear your story and share your story because I, it's important to reveal what beautiful masculinity is in a world where you have come up through this amazing, wild, hard story, hard life.
1: Yeah, it made me grow up. (laughs) At (laughs) 55 years old, I finally grew up. Wow.
0: So share uh, your life. Where'd you grow up, uh, literally, in the sense of uh, where were you born and, and your life growing up?
1: Well, I was born in Saratoga Springs, New York, and I think back in history, part of my relatives' owned part of the racetrack and a mountain and a lake, and that was just where I started. At the age of four, I moved to Vermont, where my life really started, and uh, I was a teeny tiny guy, so I didn't really make many friends, so I spent a lot of my time in the woods. I had a trapping line, and I was a hunter, and which blows my mind now because I'm that's the furthest thing from my mind, but I ended up feeding the family at times with my skills. So
0: wow!
1: I'd sell muskrat skins for buck and beaver skins for 25 back in the sixties. So it was, you know, it was just real different living off the land. You know,
0: that's amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) Who taught you how to do that?
1: Me. Yeah. It's been, it's been part of me ever since I was born. Hmm. Uh, I was born with double pneumonia and was born a month early so I struggled with life from the beginning and a crazy story this is I gotta throw this in there it was something my mom told me when I was about 18 because I had a sunroom where I had to be because of my pneumonia and I had a nurse Uh, this lady took care of me and I remember her face out of the crib it was looked like the church lady in that whatever that that skit was but uh, (laughs) my mom told me she turned out she killed the next kid she watched with an ax and it's like, wow! Well, I survived that. I guess that was the start of my life was Whoa. surviving something crazy. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> nuts! but no wonder yeah.
0: you remember her face cause she's looking at you and you're looking back at her like, uh, now I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do, <laughs> don't do it. Wow. So from, from learning to trap and hunt and process your own game and, and all that, um, did, how'd you get into, I mean, take me from that age to where you got into the motor sports and when you started getting <clears throat> drawn down that path.
1: Well, it's funny cause I was from Vermont and race car drivers don't come from Vermont, <clears throat> but I always, you know, looked at Mario Andretti and Bobby Unser as kind of like my heroes. And when I was probably 15, I uh, bought a go-kart from this place called Broad Acres and bought a, with my newspaper and mowing money, I bought a Mach 9 racing engine. McCulloch Chainsaws made racing engines for go-karts back then. Cool. And, and living in Chalot, Vermont, <clears throat> we had a little covered bridge by the lake. I, ra- I rode the go-kart around like a four-mile thing through the middle of town, down across railroad tracks, and it was my racetrack. And everybody talked about this crazy kid on this go-kart. Like, was, <laughs> and that was my dream of life wow. ever since I can remember was to drive race cars. Mm. I don't know what my, my dad was a fighter pilot in world war two. And, and a quick story about that is, you know, my dad and I didn't get along well. We had a tough life together. In fact, we didn't have one, but uh, I was told a story by my mom that he and uh, a pilot friend of his took off and, Inverted in front of the tower and Corsair, you know, tail dragon, three thousand horsepower engine, piston engine planes. Wow. And he used to land on aircraft carriers. He never made the war, so he was like frustrated by not participating. But mm. I was told he was a great pilot, so that maybe is my heritage. But then mm. I thought to the Top Gun movie. Where did that story come from? Mm. And, you know, it was just as I've gone through the sacred medicine, I've I would I resented my dad through life because of how he treated me. But I came to understand who he is because of his generation mm. and then respect him. In fact, I've got something I hold in my hand every day, which is a lighter of his.
0: Mm. from oh, wow. wow.
1: The air, aircraft carrier Guadalcanal. Wow. And now i cherish it with a in my hand and i feel energy from this thing mm. and i hold it for a minute or so and it's mm. i honor my dad finally after despising it for all my life up until i started to do the sacred medicine mm. so, so that was how kind of how I, I guess i got my genetics to racing but i did uh hill climbs and stuff in my old bmw 2002 in vermont they had these little weekend events where they close the road off and then i moved to california and did the when i was like <clears throat> 20 21 it did the whole west coast had a kind of a semi not pro but a big deal mm-hmm. we're all the way to boise idaho corvallis oregon california wow. and i did this series in a bmw and then bought a formula a car which is an old like little Indy car and did it one year and that got what they call king of the hill the fastest guy up the mountain yeah wow. you know the whole thing so i was in my blood wow so what
0: what was it like what were the other race cars right <laughs> is there a fraternity or like a brotherhood of racing or is it really competitive in that
1: well there is and there isn't uh mm-hmm racing for me was a big deal. I, I went through driver's school in like 1982 uh, as a novice. My BMW race car wasn't ready, so I, I had to ask my wife at the time if I could use her brand new RX-7, put a roll bar in it and a fire extinguisher and go through driver's school and then the first two novice races, right? And she agreed, so that's how I started my racing career. And First race, I you know wasn't my. I didn't know anything about it. It was, but it was in my spirit. I did okay, and then the second weekend we had a. We, they started the guys, the instructors would start who I th- they thought had more potential. They put them in the back mm. and see if they could pass anybody. So uh, they put me in twenty uh, first place, and I, and I passed all but one guy in wow. my second race. I I beat. Like six national champions in my second race as a novice and starting from way back. And I was hooked. Wow. You know, I didn't have kids at the time, but I would have sold them all. That's <laughs> <laughs> to do <laughs> I it. I love <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: what, I mean, describe for someone who's never um, raced, what is racing? It's not driving, it's not someone's a driver on freeways. That's not what this sport is. There's a a presence to being in that seat and
1: describe what it, that's like. It's a uh, I've always had the focus, but it is a focus beyond if you're any good at it and you don't crash much. If you have the focus that it takes to do it right. It is absolutely eliminating every other thought from your mind Mm. i see pebbles and and lines in the track Uh, all i see are i i see people around me without looking at them Mm. i have this presence like a bubble around me and i know where everybody is Mm. it's a focus beyond anything i remember in one race and like my maybe my second year i was like i started last and i passed everybody i was already winning the race. Mm. And I started thinking about shopping and I almost went off the track. Wow. like, like, and that's the last time I ever did that. And that was only like when I first started, but the focus is intense. It is. And I have ADD. So it was like, it was good for me to be, I can really zone in on, on things like that. So Mm. I was just good at it. It was just in me to, I had a, the cat like feel in my, my, in my butt. It's like your computer. And I was a drummer as a kid in high school and stuff. So in, like in race cars, you're using two feet, two hands doing all this stuff. And it's it's like a ballet. It's a, a symphony of motion. It's really cool.
0: Do you f- think that um, – I've often wondered that consciousness where you're, you say you could see the bubble. Is there um, – looking back, do you feel like you could actually see the – her view, like consciously, not with your eyesight, but you knew like where the tail end of your car was.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, every, every uh, with, within an inch. Mm. At one race in a Formula 2000, which is a little Indy car, I passed 21 cars on the first lap wow. by starting last. And with open wheel cars, if you even touch tires, you know, somebody's going in the air. Wow. And I just knew where the gaps were and knew I was going to be there. And I knew what they were going to do. I just had this weird second, third, fifth sense of yes. spatial awareness. It was, it's a cool freaking thing. I'll tell you, it's wow. really cool.
0: Did you notice that you had that before you started racing? And was there any, a, like a spiritual moment in your life growing up? You And, and before you even answer that, it seems like hunting and trapping, although I understand you want to do it now, there's also something very spiritual there to see a life and death and, and yeah. that whole cycle. Did you have the spiritual awareness or anything when you were very young?
1: Well, my respect for animals was if I shot it, I ate it mm-hmm. or I used his hide. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I even shot a chickadee once and they taste horrible. They're like really bitter. Like a little teeny bird, right? It's silly stuff, but I was that respectful of of the animals that I was around. And most of the time, I would like chase deer through the woods. I'd run, jump over logs, and you know, you never catch anything. But it was just this cool, free spirit because I spent most of my childhood alone. You know, you know, brother that punched me in the face thought it was fun and. And so I was just on my own and I I really loved it. Growing up in Vermont was a beautiful place to do that.
0: Mm, That's beautiful. Um, The only thing I know is uh, the movie White Christmas. (laughs) I think I saw that.
1: (laughs) It's much more beautiful than all that. It's really spectacular. I bet. And it was cool growing up there because all the farmers knew me. I was this long haired kid and I was a little different, I guess but I was physical active and stuff. I grew up working on farms, bailing hay. Mm. And that's where I, I got, I got my strength from was we bailed 3000 bales one day and f- bailed it off the field and put it in the hay wow. And you're throwing, I weighed about at that time, I you know might've weighed all of a bale of hay. <laughs> I was like 82 pounds when I was a freshman in high school. Wow. So <clears throat> then they weigh 50 to 70 pounds if they're wet. And, uh, it just, uh, that's kind of the stringiness I got and, and then the fighting spirit I had to have, cause I was a little guy that got pushed around a lot. So mm. yeah,
0: but, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you and I met, um, and we'll get into what that was and the beauty of that and how that's healed you and, and myself. But we met where there was a lot of big men around. I'm a big guy. There's a lot of big guys yeah. that you talked about, um, you grew up not feeling safe around men because you were always picked on. Like talk, explain that journey of being bullied or being the smallest guy and what that was like for you.
1: Yeah, that was, that was a tough, because like I say, I didn't have a dad to teach me how to be a young kid or a young man and a man. So I was just fending for myself.
0: And real quick, was your dad alive? Just absent. Is that right?
1: Absent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I have a story about that but he was basically he spent 10 minutes with me once in the woods and my whole life that was it except for fiberglassing the bottom of a sailboat but that was work but yeah I was you know I was like a pawn in like in high school I was pushed around by the big guys to start fights between the other the big guys and I was made fun of and I had long hair and I was picked on and teased and Mm. It was, yeah, it was, you know, this bully thing. But it it, it allowed me to develop a character of strength. Mm.
0: You
1: know, I never took it like I was, my feelings were hurt. I always took it as a, a f- try to figure out how to compete with big men. Mm. And uh, and to me, big men were all buttheads and assholes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way they talked about women and the whole thing was, to me, was, not what I wanted to be. Yeah. So I remember telling one guy, he became a good friend of mine. And I told him one day in the hall, I said, you know, one day I'm going to be stronger than you. And I'm going to kick your ass. (laughs) He's he's like six, two. And he looked at me like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when I was, uh, I started wrestling in high school as a junior Mm. and uh, it was like embarrassing as I was so shy. It was in front of the whole school at Christmas break. Wow. You know, the, the hour before we get out of school, I'm wrestling against this farm kid that was really strong and ended up beating him. He wow. says I pulled his pants down. That's why he lost. But <laughs> we became friends. But I started uh, lifting weights and because of the and hay and stuff, I got a wrestling scholarship to UMass. Wow. I was graduated uh, five foot three, I 132 pounds. And I could bench press 325 pounds. Wow. Which is a lot for a little guy. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot yeah.
0: for big guys, some big guys. <laughs> you know, that's a oh, lot. It
1: was, but my big brother was big guy. You know, he wasn't real tall, but he was a really big guy like you're built. Uh, and he could bench 400. So it was like, that was my challenge. So. Wow. And he helped me work out because he was going to UMass. Wow. And I went down there and did a men's open tournament. For the first time, didn't win and got my ass kicked. But, wow! But uh, that gave me the strength of in life to to persevere and get through stuff and to to make it. Mm. You know, if I didn't learn that physical presence as a as a kid or up into my through my teens, uh, life would have been very different. But.
0: Did you end up finishing college? Was that did you go to UMass and did you go through that whole journey?
1: Uh, the scholarship wasn't for enough money and my big brother really didn't want me down there. I'm seven years younger. So it was like, mm-hmm. he had made college like a career, so, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. guess he got a bachelor's or something out of it, but yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I went to have gone to a lot of colleges, but I've never, i got credits and stuff, but yeah, I went to the university of Vermont and then spring break came and I went to Fort Lauderdale and I said, screw it. This is too much fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's <laughs> but, awesome.
1: That was my life. Yeah.
0: So, when did you step into racing during this time?
1: Um, I didn't get into racing till I moved to California. Really, God. that was when in 1982 is when I started. I went through SCCA driver school, which is a big deal. Mm. Uh, my first year, at the end of the first year, they said you're going to instruct next year. And that was like this incredible honor. It's like really, I'm going to be an instructor and That was huge for me. And then I knew I I must have something and uh, started teaching. And uh, I would take all the women because the other instructors were too macho. And one year I had three girls. One was the best driver of 300 drivers. And the second one was the most improved driver and they got like Yokohama jackets as trophies. And the third was a blonde girl, very pretty. who had a little white mouse on her shoulder. I said, "No, you're you're just not serious about this. I'm gonna have to flunk you." So, you know, but it was this. It was fun to watch my students, you know, go out exactly. and kick butt.
0: Yeah. You know. Um. So during this time, and you, I mean, you won a lot of races. Tell me about just tell share with what you were able to accomplish in racing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started from like my second race starting 21st finishing second i broke the track record beat all these national champions in my ex-wife's rx7 wasn't even a race car and it was a class called showroom stock so all these people competed and they would go to the national championships in atlanta georgia so these guys were been around for years and um, then i my bmw was i finished it for the third race and just started setting track records every time I was out on the track and had a great bunch of competition against Mazda RX3s. There were like 10 of them and I'm the only BMW. And so they, they hated me. And like the third year I had this really cool uh, crew chief, Pete Franciosi. He's a maniac from, they call him that from Maine. You know, he's big guy, big guy, big strong guy. Uh And, uh, but we showed up one day and said, I just, let's start last. These guys came to my shop at a BMW repair shop and they stole all the wheels off my race car oh, wow! the day before the race. So I had to find other wheels to put on it. We started last and beat everybody. Wow. So that became my thing of showing up late for pre-grid. So you have to start last or, and they, the, the uh, course workers on pre-grid where all the cars are lined up, they had this chalkboard and they would say five minute warning and they'd walk down. So everybody was in their cars and they get ready to go out on the track. And they started putting my car number on there. Car number 75 or 77 is starting last. <laughs> and they would let everybody know I was coming. It was fun.
0: That's amazing.
1: I had a lot of fun doing it. Mm. It was really cool. And, and I got into pro racing and finished third in my first endurance race, six-hour endurance race at Sears Point with uh, one of my coworkers which is really cool. And then, uh, I ended up buying a corv One of my customers bought me a Corvette to race 24 hour endurance races. Wow. Until I rolled it up into a ball 14 times at Laguna Seca. But, wow. Uh, it was a, it was a great time for me just to show up with it. After I wrecked the Corvette, I got hired by Volvo and, uh, mazda factory teams to just be the night driver so i get in at midnight and they'd leave me in there until somebody wanted to get back in wow normally it's four hours as a maximum and one time at toronto canada i was in for like five and a half hours i said hey guys anybody else want to drive <laughs> it's like <laughs> and it's funny because every car i'd never been to these tracks before i would never been in the cars before these guys had these cars for a year or two and i always go faster than the other three drivers wow I was just focused on every lap being perfect. Mm. Perfection to me is my life. I've always been too focused on that part. Mm. But uh, I kind of given that up a little bit. But, mm. but that made me who I was. I had track records everywhere. Amazing. It was, I still have a track record at Laguna Seca in Formula 2000, which is a little IndyCar kind of thing, open wheel. And then, of course, they changed the configuration of the track so it will stand for life. But
0: wow, that's cool.
1: That's, That's just fun. A, yeah. Fun thought. Yeah. Well,
0: when so you're you're done racing. When did life take a turn where you end up in San Quentin? And this is one of the most unbelievably amazing stories.
1: Yeah, well, I went through a lot of stuff. I had a very successful BMW shop for many, many years and things changed. Uh, my third wife or I had two little boys with decided I worked too hard and said, if you don't change it in six months, a year, say we're done. And I said, give me three months. If I don't think I change it, I'll sell the business. In a month she was gone mm. and uh, broke my heart. So I basically <clears throat> sort of gave up the business and brought it home to my garage at home and worked there. Mm. But that, that really set me up for, bad choices and doing stupid things and mm. got into meth. I guess I could tell people I, yeah. Yeah. I ended up making it. Uh, Cause I'm like a chemist and I only made it for myself. And I had this process of, to me, the process was addicting, not the, not the meth, but it helped my ADD. Mm. It helped me focus when I, if I was in a race car, I was cool. But otherwise in life I was scattered. I was out there. And during that time, I uh, invented a tool design, which I have a patent on, uh, finance and engine design patent, and uh, which we put into a race car before that. But it was uh, something that I did for a couple, three years and then decided it was not wise. Hmm. I didn't like where I was going with it. So I quit and I was having my boys every other week for, for the week and it was just a kind of a bummer time. And then my wife moved uh, hundred miles away. So I was riding my GSXR 1000 in the afternoon to watch my boys play soccer hundred miles away and then back to work. Wow. And they were sometimes on two different fields. So it was like crazy, but I 150 miles an hour and it doesn't take very long. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's how I rode every day. Wow. Every day I rode 150 miles an hour up the freeway in California, wow. up to Sacramento, Roseville. Yeah, you know, it just never got stopped, never got chased. I only got chased till I got in trouble. That was that's another story, but I um ended up hanging out with the wrong people mm. and um ended up living in my car for a little bit, I lost my business. Mm. Uh, that story is, is a whole story about child support and maybe on unemployment, so I couldn't afford it, didn't know you had to change the order, so they got me in big trouble. They were going to put me in jail for two years. I went to a girlfriend's house, was doing meth, I told her to stop. It's no good for you. She went to Greece. I found some there, put it in my pocket. I was going to, going to show it to her when she got back from Greece. I said, you promised you weren't doing it.
0: Mm.
1: Riding my red motorcycle back to my house slow because I knew it was in my pocket. And the cops pulled in my driveway behind me we caught you, we caught you like cars everywhere. I said, what do you mean? I said, we weird? You out, we're trying to outrun us. I said, that wasn't me. And that, like, and I finally convinced him it wasn't me, but they said, well, we just checked and you have this, this, you've, you missed your child payments, whatever, empty your pockets. Uh, I had to put my pockets out on this. Oh, and there, that's how this whole thing started with some, it was 30 days in jail, but it was the start of once you're in the system, you know, mm. Anyways, uh, I was with this girl I thought I was in love with. She was half my age, you know, living around dumpster divers and whole crazy part of my life, which I actually have some fond memories of. It was a crazy time, but, you know, it was a learning experience. Mm. Anyways, I had stopped doing meth and I'd stopped all that. And I thought she had. But she had a girlfriend that was caught smoking meth. Mm. And her boyfriend, when she had two kids with, plus she was pregnant, turned her into the cops. So the cops said, turn somebody in. We're going to take your kids away from you. So she wasn't allowed in my house because I knew she was smoking meth while she was pregnant. And, but she was my girlfriend's best friend. So she showed up one day at this house I was taking care of. And the guy happened to be a furniture restorer who was in county jail. free place to take care of for a year and uh she showed up i was getting a beer out of the fridge and the and came out and said what's she doing here she's oh she just had she's leaving okay so she left and there was a knock on the door and i opened up the door and there was a cop he said can i come in i want to talk to you i said no i'll come out and talk to you So we went around the corner to talk and another cop went, knocked on the door and my girlfriend let him in. And then they were in. And what had happened was a bag of used chemicals was found in the house of meth chemicals. Mm. She had set us up, brought the cops, blocked the street off in a really nice part of San Jose, California, and because the guy was a furniture restorer, they found all kinds of chemicals. So they had their three, three things to con, you know, charge you with and a nightmare started. And uh, So long story short, two lawyers later, one for her, one for me. I'm older, she's young. She had a prior with an ex-boyfriend that did something stupid. She was gonna get 10 years. And they're they threatening me with five, but you'll get off because you're just an old guy. It was her, her story, her deal. We, we kind of know that. So the lawyer said, you're done, but she's gonna get 10 years. And I said, no, that's not cool. I'm not doing that. She didn't do anything wrong. She was set up, you know? So I did a plea bargain, which is, now I look back, it's really smart. Plea bargains should never be allowed. Uh, we both got a year in county jail mm. and did nine months in county, got out on probation after about nine months of showing up every week, like I was supposed to doing the urine test and, you know, showing up on Tuesday at 10 every day, every week. I mean, yeah, it was like, okay. He, one day I showed up and he said, where were you yesterday? This guy, you know, it's like a big tough guy. He just hated me his, for some reason. He said, we told the people you were staying with that uh, you were supposed to show up yesterday, turn around, put handcuffs on me, put me back in jail as a parole violator and decided they were gonna give me the full five years of my term. Wow. So it was basically a setup to make me do my time. Wow. So I tried fighting it and I probably would've gotten in maybe two years, but I knew I was, I mean, this is crazy made the mistake of fighting it. And uh, so they, they gave me the full five years and uh, spent time in the maximum security of county jail. And then somebody didn't like me for, I don't know if the judge, the judge told me to sell my M5 BMW and buy a calendar next time you won't be late. It's his parting words to me. Wow. And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So They decided uh, in the middle of the night, I was going to prison, which is I knew was coming, but they wake you up at three in the morning wow. in the dark. They put you on a bus. You're all confused. They take most of your shit away. You, you just go somewhere. You never, you go on the freeway. You don't know where you're going. And I show up at San Quentin. Wow. It was like, wow, this is like a city. It's like, this is, I've heard this place is bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: there I was. I'm just, I'm just starting to write the story. It's, it's yeah, crazy.
0: It is. Uh, I mean, most people know San Quentin from the outside of Johnny Cash playing there and doing a yeah. concert. That's you know. Yep. And you know it from the inside.
1: Uh, yeah. You mean, know the How has a beautiful mural. That's I, I it, wish people could see it. It's it's just fantastic. Artwork done by the inmates. But anyways, wow. another story.
0: Wow. <laughs> did um, Did fear ever zing you during this time? Was there ever a, that feeling? Or were you, by racing and just your life, more cerebral about it?
1: You know, that's a funny story because a lot of people I, I've talked to about fear because – I have never in my life understood what fear is. Hmm. I don't understand the concept.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. Uh,
1: that's that's why I I raced motorcycles and cars like I did because yeah, yeah. After, after a crash, I was back in another car. I didn't care. It was, you know, I look at the car. Oh, that's all messed up. Uh, the guy's going to be pissed at me for wrecking his car. But other than that, it was like, put me back on a horse, dude. Wow. Now I want to ride this bicycle again. So wow. no, I... I never thought of it that way. It was, it was intense because I understand danger and I'd heard all the stories and the stories were pretty messed up. And a lot of it's true. And a lot of it is something I want to write about and tell people that as long as you respect the people you're around and learn as fast as you can, what the rules are, you know, it's, it can work out all right. You don't have to be afraid. You have to be aware in the moment all the time, all the time. But uh, and respect is something I learned is that's it. If you disrespect, you either get the crap beat out of you. Like, I mean, really beat out of you or you die Mm. or you get the crap beat out of you and you die because of it. Mm. That's how serious that is know especially with other races you know even with your own race but mostly with other races it's it's a big deal so that's how i carry myself with respect but i never understood the fear of it it was just a how am i going to get through this dangerous thing how am i going to figure this out so i make the best of it and just take it every day as it came. and that's kind of how i survived it and still have all my teeth wow which is cool yeah it's amazing i, I yeah. duck fast
0: there's so many um, <clears throat> questions I have about the human nature inside prison. So I don't know if I've told you this, but I, I so I've been a Christian minister preacher at own ministry worship leader. I've been writing songs since I was seven years old. My first song I wrote when I was seven years really? old. Really? Yeah. It just piano, all instrumental came out with the album when I was 20, all instrumental album, mu- original music that I wrote, <laughs> but I've also been singing and had a band. And I would go play worship at these penitentiaries. So I would oh, no. um, go and just I'd get invited by some group that's going to minister the inmates and I would go lead worship. And. I had never been at that time more scared. I, I was. You, it's funny. You didn't know fear. I lived in fear. I just was constantly afraid for, you know, you know, a little bit of my story yeah. um, or, you know, my story. I mean, you know, but I was yeah. just constantly in fear broken
1: to the core, Which surprises afraid. me for your stature, your stature. I know, wrong. I know. I, I, was like, I tell people,
0: people think I'm a small guy. I tell, uh, When I have men's retreats <laughs> and guys meet me for the first time, they're like, oh, I thought you were like 5'7". <laughs> like, right, you know,
1: yeah, I'm like, like a <laughs> yeah,
0: big, big guy. Um, <laughs> but I was so afraid and it was amazing because I was there for three days and I went through all the movements, I forget what they call them, movements or um, it was in Shelton Penitentiary, which is uh, the the processing penitentiary before they send people. So it was general population in the state penitentiary right. before they send people to maximum down a Walla Walla or um, this island nearby where the sexual predators go and all these things. So I'm in there with these guys. And... I was, I was afraid. It was amazing. Like the fear. Cause I recognized that spirit, that, that animal spirit in there that I just like yeah. zero sum all like, yeah, I felt it. I was like surrounded by how I feel like I grew up. It was only, it was hundreds of them. <laughs> I'm like, Holy shit. And i And there to play, um, play music. And I learned about the races and I saw a guy actually, I grew up with there he, he armed robbery and stabbed the guy. Uh, I wasn't too good of friends with him, but I'd hang out. He grew up in the neighborhood. My buddy grew up in, I hadn't seen this guy in years. All of a sudden like,
1: no.
0: Hey, he's like, he didn't say anything. He just <laughs> saw me and kept walking. He's Filipino guy. Um, but I bring all this up. It's just, I got a chance to see, inside. And I went to uh penitentiary in Monroe, Washington, and I played worship there, but it is a different world inside there. And oh. well, I have to tell you a cool thing, a, a real quick story. I've always, ever since I was young, I've had these visions of like, like arenas filled with people and just the spirit of God moves on people. Just <clears throat> I've seen like so many times that I'm leading, playing worship music to God, singing, just crying out to God and like God moves. That's the only way I can describe it. Like water like washes through and at the maximum or the um, the, the processing penitentiary that I was in. So guys went to maximum, guys went everywhere there. Right. And I was there for three days and I went and ate lunch with them. We were in, so, and, and the warden or whoever the guys were were saying, when that buzzer buzzes, you move with them you don't sit around like so we were going through everything with these guys i traded a brownie for cornbread with a guy guy had scars all over his face looked like he got yeah. pushed through glass you know oh, yeah. yeah big dude big big man he was like six 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 seven big dude anyway so it was through this i start leading worship and there's like 300 inmates in this room and, you know, everyone's sitting around there at first, like, all right, you know, something to do other than whatever they else they were, yeah. they were sitting in there, sitting in there. And, and because how I grew up, I have I've always loved God. That is one thing about me, like who God is, what God is. Like We don't need it doesn't even matter. I have like yearned for like the love of God because I didn't have love anywhere else. So I just just right. For so I'm playing. And all of a sudden something happened in that room where all of a sudden I start crying and these men start crying. And I mean, Larry, bawling crying. And it goes, you know, whatever to in the room. And the, I look over and these guys are like on their knees. No one's saying anything. I'm just singing like, uh, I remember the song. I can't think of it right now. But the, the, the warden's like, or whoever the guard was, whatever, he's like, Just keep it going. It was the first time they said, absolutely. Yeah. Continued something beyond like that. But it was amazing to see men just nowhere else to go but in and out, you know, like pour their hearts out.
1: Wow. That's the thing about being there is there's that all that stuff builds up every day.
0: Mm. And
1: I would have loved to have seen that because I have never seen that.
0: They've never. No, the guys, when we left, they said they've never extended. They called it a movement. I forget what they called it, a movement or something like that, or that they never have extended one of those things in that penitentiary history. But because the guys were just, it wasn't show. It was like something. I have chills right now. It was really an amazing thing to be part of and to witness. And I was like, wow, God, is this what you've shown me since I was
1: a little boy? And well, that's just it. That's it right there. You, you heal them for a day. I'll bet you one thing. There were no fights that day. Hmm. And the guards loved you for that. Because hmm. guards could let their guard down. Because that tension is palpable oh, all the time, 24-7. That's why so many guards commit suicide, get divorced. Uh, it's, it's a crazy job to have. But hmm. being around those men, it, what you felt is absolutely real. And it is not something if you haven't been there, you cannot understand it because these are some serious dudes yeah. that have not, they have nothing to lose, but the respect in their manhood. And so that is the battle 24 seven, mm. the respect in your manhood. And if you lose that, you're dust, you're gone, mm. you know? So it's uh, yeah. Being around that energy is, it's intense, and I'm a little guy, right? So yeah.
0: So tell me the journey for you in there.
1: I walked through with these seriously scary dudes. Yeah. I just walked with them like I was part of them. I I I made a mistake. that It's San Quentin. You know, West Block is 250 guys on a side of these. This uh, five tiers tall. So there's 500 guys in this building, noisy, noisy and crap, but every uh, murderers, child molesters, Mm. transvestites, uh, everybody's in there together and you all have to exist together. Mm. You have to shower together when you get your five minute, this section goes down and they all shower together and five shower heads and, you know, make sure you're fast. The soap's not off too bad. You know, And you, you don't look at anybody. You don't, you know, it's all serious stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the first, the first day I was out, I, I got, of course, they showed up in the middle of the night and that's what they do to intimidate you to, it's a beginning of crushing your soul and your spirit mm-hmm. and your confidence, because that's how they learn how that's how they get control over you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I get it. I get into San Quentin in the middle of the night. They put me in a cell with a, the cells are nine feet long. They're four feet wide and they're maybe eight feet tall. So the upper bunk is like, you can't put your arm up. It just, the ceiling's right there. It's all concrete. Wow. So I, I get, crawl up onto this mattress, which was, it used to be an inch thick and now it's like half just fabric and it's all piss stained and, and rusty. And and you know, they give you some shirts, some clothes and a blanket. And they throw you in there at three in the morning and then, you wake up for chow and you go to chow before the sun comes up. They, they give you chow at breakfast at like four in the morning. It's all about screwing up your, your routine to control you and to break you down. Mm. So anyways, you go to sleep for a while after chow and then you go back out to the yard. And the first time on the yard is like, there's all gangs, the Mexicans, the blacks, they're all over this, it's probably half the size of a football field. This yard, mm. and if you, there are invisible lines on the ground that I had no idea of, and I walked across, maybe a, like a, across the twelve-inch tile onto a Mexican's space, and they have people posted up everywhere. I didn't realize at first either, watching everything that goes on. Mm. So the, I got in trouble for that and they, I was supposed to get beat up for it. The very first day there. Wow. So they convinced the Mexicans that I was brand new. I did not an old guy. Like I was still, in, I've always been in great shape, but yeah. so I never looked my 50 some odd years old. Mm. And so they said, you got I, you know, treat them with respect. We'll make them do a whole bunch of pushups and stuff. So they let that go. But I didn't realize that it's, like an invisible world that controls everything. Yeah. And if you violate any part of it, you'll get stabbed mm. or get the crap beat out. See, the thing about the the gangs in prison, most of it is done by your own guys because they don't want to riot. So mm-hmm. if you violate, like if you played cards with a Mexican and didn't, you lost. And what they use in prison is uh, top ramen soups. Well, at least when you get not a San Quentin didn't have that, but um, if you lose, if you can't pay your debt with your top ramen soups, you owe debt. You have to, the, your own guys have to beat you up for it. Wow. And they have to beat you up properly. And and you have to fight back. If you don't fight back hard enough, they beat you even harder. And the Mexicans have to see this happen. Wow. So that's how people don't die. You just get your teeth knocked out. And, mm it's a, it's a crazy world, dude. And, uh, I mean, I look back at it and I'm grateful that I ended up in San Quentin instead of some rat hole this somewhere. Would... I wanted to have a story, you know, like wow. this, this dragon tattoo. Yeah. I, I was, I hated tattoos. I thought they were stupid. It's like, yeah, you know, like, okay, that's kind of weird. I'm never going to ruin my skin that way. I'm too into health and, Mm-hmm. been taking vitamins but a handful since the 60s. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, th- this dragon tattoo happened in the last two months of my term at High Desert State Prison. Wow. You want me to tell you that part? Yeah, tell us. Because San Quentin it became a routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I followed the rules. I learned the game. Uh, I couldn't sleep at all. I've had back issues and stuff. And I've been in car accidents and motorcycle all my life. I've been banged up and I uh, couldn't sleep. So mm. the cell next to me, uh, uh, I was in the middle row of the third tier up and next to me was this uh, Indian, American Indian guy mm. who was the head of the, uh, the Indians. Right. Yeah. And he used to get this medication, which I figured I'll take any, I don't care what it's for. I'll take it. Cause it maybe it'll help me sleep make you dry, drowsy. Right. Yeah. So I was, I would write poetry for him so he could send it to his girlfriend on the outside. Wow. And so I built a, like a, my own little way of surviving by writing letters and stuff for, for guys. And wow. which was, was kind of cool. By the but way, anyways, you, are,
0: you yeah. are a tremendous writer.
1: Oh, well, I thank really you. Love I love your writing. <laughs> and
0: when your book comes out, everyone just get ready for it because it's so you just have a really beautiful way of and honest and strong way of telling stories. So I just want you, I don't want to honor you. I I bet, I bet those guys loved it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, I I got that from my dad. My dad used to write poetry and stuff. So Mm, that's cool. uh, But, uh, no, I studied, I I was really smart when I was a little guy. Mm. I read the encyclopedia Britannica, uh, Botanica. When I at, by the age of ten, I'd read the whole thing, right. and I could tell you what was in it. And I just found out Elon Musk did that at the age of nine, so he beat me by. <laughs> a <little bit>. but <laughs> That's hilarious.
0: That's awesome. But
1: my dream as a kid, dude, was was I wanted to know everything there was to know. Mm. I was I was like fascinated by knowledge. And then going into high school, parents fought all the time. It was a shit show. Mm-hmm. that's a whole nother story mm-hmm. but uh dragouts and racing off in cars and me and my buddy up on the hill betting on who was going to leave the house first and mm-hmm. it was terrible but uh where was I going with knowledge, this? You're, you're uh, they, knowledge. Uh, yeah it, I got it because the parents split up in high school I had to work my way through being a senior just to eat I got in trouble by the principal who stood in the parking lot one day i was driving back in i used to deliver computer cards to ibm from my dad's business in burlington in vermont and uh i'd do it at six i'd do it at, at noon i'd do it at six at night and i deliver punch cards the old computer days Wow. wow. so i show up to school late for homeroom and the principal hated me for it because i wouldn't sorry i've got to eat he was waiting for me in the parking lot once and i so i i saw him i had a little volkswagen bug and i just aimed for him So I I got a spelled for two weeks. So anyways, but because of all that, I I found LSD. Mm. And I found that LSD, psilocybin, MDA, you name it, I did it. Anything that was mind expanding and I I saw what's possible. That was to me fascinating. And I did that for years.
0: Just before your race car days?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So this this is yeah yeah okay.
1: Yep. I I was I, one one day. My brother used to go up to Toronto, Canada, and bring it across the border until he got busted. Mm. But he had like a whole baggie full of uh, orange sunshine, and I took uh, twenty three hits one night of Athens. and I was I was gone for three days. I made up my own language, but I saw the most incredible world, like a different universe, mm. and then another one. It was like mind-changing but after all that i started you know fall foliage in vermont's beautiful but the luster of the colors of the leaves was gone Mm. so i stopped that's when i stopped and i changed my focus to cars and got into racing but yeah that's a crazy time but that took away my uh kind of changed with the parents and all that and the drugs mind expanding as they were it kind of softened me for knowledge, hmm. but it did teach me one thing that the knowledge is up there. Yeah. In in the acoustic record and I accessed it, I couldn't bring anything back, but I knew it was there. And I learned through life when I needed to fix a problem, I wake up in the morning with the answer. And I've done that my whole life. It's amazing. It's a cool thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I would say that the audience of this podcast, I've, <laughs> Um, I've even had, uh, I've had my own Akashic records read and, um, beautiful soul, Lori Martinez, um, on a few times. And so my audience knows about the Akashic records to live in that knowingness that everything is.
1: It's all there. It's
0: all there. It's all there, which, you know, I believe that God is loved and the whole universe fabric is, is based on this law of love, which of course, then it would be all there because, loves it's all there it's not withheld it's just we're not taught or encouraged or aware enough to know how to access which i think is what this dark consciousness that we're seeing leave the earth right now yeah has been from us
1: i think part of it could be this is just my theory is we're not supposed to know all that yet we're here for a unique experience Mm. and that's why prison to me cool was a gift cool. as nuts as it was and as hard. And it crushed me. I came out a destroyed person. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even drive a car when I got out and I was a race car driver. That's mm-hmm. how, how, that's how they crushed your spirit. But, uh, I, I think I look back at that as, it, Hey, you can't buy that experience. Yeah. You, you don't go through things like that in life. And if you look back at them as a, a huge bummer that haunts you, Although last night, my dreams were about being chased by the cops again.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
1: because I was chased nine times on my motorcycle and never caught helicopters and everything after me. Wow. I got stories that go on for hours, but uh, no, that's life, dude. That's, mm. We are here to experience. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I don't have fear because it doesn't matter the fear only holds you back from the experience. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. That's right. You know
1: you you see danger and you don't want to kill yourself, you don't want to die because we're here for the experience. Mm. And I've been in places where I wanted to commit suicide. Mm. When I was younger, yeah. life got pretty tough for me and I realized that I and mean, that's not something I could do mm. because that's cheating. And then I started to learn that I'm here. I have a purpose to be here. I'm, I want to have fun. I want to be that I want to experience it all, which my ancestors taught me at two journeys ago, both sides of a palm tree Mm. Germans on one side, Brits on the other used to fight each other They're warriors. They survived and out came this guy. And they said, we're experiencing existence through you. So that's your, that's your purpose. Amazing. So that's amazing.
0: Uh, yeah. Real quick, just because the question is still on my mind, how long were you in San Quentin for?
1: I was only there. I, you know, time I, I've been married three times. And I couldn't tell you how long to each one, Yeah, but yeah. I would say about four months before I got transferred to high desert state prison. Wow. which which is way up North in the boonies up by Nevada. And the, and it's, I found out through the job that I got there that it's twice as dangerous as San Quentin mm-hmm. more deaths by stabbings and more deaths by hanging and more deaths by medical issues than any other prison in California. Wow. But um, that was a, I had a whole story about that just showing up there. Cause they take you out of San Quentin in the middle of the night. And that basically that story is I survived it. Mm-hmm. And I just got a taste of, Okay. That's the worst place. Well, maybe it wasn't, but, uh, take you out of there at three in the morning again. put you on a bus, take you down a tunnel, put you on a bus, all these guys, you have no idea where you're going. Nobody will tell you. Uh, we went to, uh, uh, I can't think of it right now though. The prison up by Sacramento is built with these giant granite blocks. It's a beautiful place. Uh, but anyways, we go through there, drop off a guy, and then off we go, drive all afternoon into the night. We're all chained up, right? You got ankle chains on, you got wrist chains on, and there's 40 guys on a bus, people in their pants, because mm. that, that's where we sit until we get where we're going. Yeah. People shit in their pants, and the bus stinks, and you're just like, holding it and you're just like going in middle of the night i we're driving down this road and i don't even know where Mm. and i look off the distance i see these giant lights like a space i thought it was a spaceship at first and they get closer we get we see these light towers like 200 feet tall with these huge lights and it just it's like daytime Mm. and that was high desert state prison and susanville prison which is right next door the two of them have like six thousand inmates so it's a giant giant place. And then Susanville, the town is all where the cops live. And there's nothing around for a hundred miles, but that. And, uh, did that, um,
0: looking at the other men in there, are you aware of what, what they did to get there? Or is it at that point, just everyone's there and it's more about the respect and, And who, who they are there Versus how they got there
1: Well that's interesting because um, The head of each gang The head of the whites we call it, they're, We're call called woods There's mm. the Notanios, the Serenios The Pisces, there's three different Mexicans And then there's the Crips and the Black You know, the, yep. all that stuff yep. when, you, when you come in The head of the group Asks you what you're in for oh. And he already, he already Knows what you're in for Oh, interesting because they're all hooked up with the cops they've been there forever and they want to know if first if you're honest and if you're in there for either molesting women or 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 children
0: yeah yeah
1: because that's a death sentence hmm.
0: that is straight and up they, death and they already know
1: they already know so you tell them the truth and don't tell them any more than they ask and 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 don't ask anybody what they're in for so no it's that's the respect part you you're just there with a bunch of guys doing their time and you just you know you watch your back 24 7 you watch your back you don't make friends you make acquaintances but you try to be friendly and get your little group together because everybody needs some kind of protection and to survive with some to talk to i mean it's a nutty place it's a place to go nutty
0: did um did was there ever humanity shown i mean the the guards i just even from my own experience and i, I a friend of a friend's a prison uh guard mm-hmm. um and he talks he, it's been hard on his family and like what's the dynamic between he, it, the human lens versus the guards and do you ever see humanity with those two is it something that
1: i saw very little humanity with inmates but the the guards are the the deal because some of them are super sadistic just nutcases who love torturing and and humiliating and it's Mm -hmm. like a drug for them and Part of my survival was finding, I found three cops. One of them was the biggest cop on the yard who had respect from everybody, a giant guy that protected me Mm. from the other guards. I I worked for the sergeant's office in the last year and a half or so. And Sergeant, I guess, should I use his name? Sure, yeah. Sergeant Johnson hated me. Mm. He hated me and I have no idea why. You know, I found out I was a race car driver and he said, yo, real hard going around circles. And one day I go there at seven in the morning and you look outside and says, what's what's the weather like? I say, well, it's cold out there this morning, Sergeant Johnson. It's like the middle of the winter in high desert. Yeah, freezing. He says, well, I'm not really sure. Why don't you just sit, go out there on that bench? You're in a T-shirt, right? Go out on that bench and uh, let me know how the weather is. I'll I'll come out and ask you. An hour goes by. I'm shivering my ass off. It's like, okay, what's this? So I look around. And he's, he comes out. He says, hey, he opens the door. How's the weather out there? I said, Sarge, it's cold. It's really cold out here. Okay, good. Well, let me know how it is the next hour. I'll come out and check again. He left me out there till lunchtime. Just as a fucked up thing to do. And I was like, and the other cool thing about a story, I actually wrote about this and drew a little, we were in the middle of this two mountain ranges
0: mm-hmm. and
1: off in the distance were these two giant rainbows, one over the other. Because mm-hmm. there was this mist in the sky or this rain off in the distance? And it was just this gorgeous thing I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so I have to thank, like I say, grateful for that experience because mm-hmm. this guy did everything he could to give me more time. He tried to get me to spend more time there. Cause you, when you go to prison, you go in for half time. Hmm. So I was basically there for two and a half years. And, and anytime you get written up with a 602, you get another 30 days, 90 days. And he pushed and pushed to do this wow. to me. Wow. And, and I never went for it. I even got in trouble with the warden. <laughs> wow. I was, they brought in, um, a lady for social security for old guys getting out because you don't get social security when you're in and then you got to get out and figure out how to get it so i set up to bring this lady in i did all kinds of cool shit there i taught ged and all this other stuff but wow. um brought this lady in just to, to interview guys get all paperwork set up so the day they got out the money would start again you don't get the back stuff you just get from there forward and that was like this cool thing that helped me have purpose and survive and as uh, Officer Moffat said the last couple days I was there, I said, Nap, you're one of very few who's going to leave here with this humanity. Wow. And I wish you, I wish you all the luck. Wow. Because wow. everybody comes back here. Wow. Everybody. And in California, 90% of the guys come back within the first year. The violators are they try to violate you because in California it's a business, it's worth $135 a day back then. So they've got to fill the beds. Yeah. And that's what they do.
0: Which is so sick and evil. It, yeah. It's
1: uh, <laughs> it is sick and evil. It is exactly.
0: It is. It's on <laughs> on many sides. So let's let's get in and, and as we kind of go through the last part of this podcast episode right let's talk about you know you had your early journey of psychedelics and consciousness expansion which also interestingly enough i was wondering how you could see i mean you tapped into consciousness while you're driving your vehicle so
1: okay so yeah. those
0: those tools those um
1: super focus
0: guides helped you see the truth of what you can, what we can actually see, which is our whole uh, perspective. And then right. go through this whole journey. You come out and you and I meet at a ayahuasca ceremony. How, right. and, and I, even in the short time I've known you, I've seen massive, cool, beautiful yeah. change. Even you coming on here and I, which is such an honor for me to, to get to hold space for you in this way. But how, Never would have
1: happened before in my life. I just it, a shy little kid.
0: A journey. How how did you get into? How are you called into ayahuasca? How has that and and everyone listening? This is such an important thing. I talk about this many times. Healing, healing. The the plants. Look, what do they say? Eat more vegetables to be healthier, right? Well, it's the same thing. Help. Be healthy physically, healthy spiritually, healthy emotionally, healthy psychologically, <laughs> healthy, you know, in every component spiritually, did I say spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? All these components, right? The vegetables, the plants of this earth hold the, the keys for us. Um, so it's just tremendous. But how did you go into that? How did you get called back into this world or into this? Well, world?
1: that's it's magic. And amazing how it happened, but I've been out 12 years now. And for the first 10 of it, I would think, wow, I'm so much better than I was. And I got a job finally, I used to hide in my first apartment behind, I had blankets over all the windows and stuff. And I peek out the front door once in a while, I was scared to death to go outside, wow. but I have healed in chunks and always thought, wow, I've got, wow, way better. And then my girlfriend talked to my sister, who, who put money on my books in prison so I could I could have candy bars. And actually, I used it to buy more protein. But uh, mm. my sister's going to come to Miami and said, uh, a business trip. And we're going to have lunch. When I get there, we'll talk about your trip. And I said, what trip? I said, oh, we'll talk about it when I get there. So we go to lunch at this fancy place down in wherever, down in Miami, and uh, with my girlfriend Nancy, who has put up with me for seven years, eight years now, an acupuncturist, a healer, a nutritionist. Wow. Has put me back together in little pins and little mm. pieces, right? Mm. A pin the tail on the donkey stuff. It's <laughs> It's been amazing. But so I said, You're going to Rhythmia in Costa Rica. I'm paying for both of you guys to fly down there and do this $4,000 each. She just paid for the whole thing. You need to heal. You're not better yet. You're not better. Nancy knows you're not better. And I wasn't. I was still drinking a little bit. And when I drink, I would get stupid angry. I would do stupid shit. It was prison coming back out, kept coming out. I never faced prison. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and uh, the last tea I took I was there uh, fighting the throw. There's 80 people throwing up, barfing, thinking that they're being attacked by snakes and crazy stuff. And I'm just sitting there, the warrior in the corner, right? i yeah. got my arms across my gut, just holding it in. I'm not puking. I don't puke. I'm a warrior, right? So the last cup of tea in the morning, the last morning, that just as the sun's about to come, I went and had another cup. And I'm sitting there, stomach hurting like crazy. And I said, you know, screw it. I'm going to throw up. So I drew this bucket in front of me. Everybody had a white plastic bucket and I puked in the bucket and hardly anything came out. It was probably just part of the plant. Mm -hmm. And I looked in there and I saw a prison. Wow. And I went, holy shit, look at the light towers and the guard stands. And so I slid it away and I said, well, no, I don't want you anymore. And that was the start. That was the start. And uh, so when I came back, to miami i uh, a friend a client of my girlfriend nancy's knew about this place to do it so Mm -hmm. all right i need more of that but i didn't want to puke i didn't want that stomach thing Mm -hmm. turns out it's mellow magic Mm -hmm. it is sacred plants Mm -hmm. with benevolence And and, and love yeah and It took I think I've done it maybe 10 times now, but it took up until the second to the last one, Mm. improving each time. And then the time before saying I'm never coming back, Mm. I felt all these everybody's crap. And and all I do is take shit in because I'm kind of empathic. Yeah. Yeah. I got a big, a bad brain injury in prison. Mm. I got thrown on my head. I'd never been knocked out in my life. I went blind in prison, didn't know where I was what to do about it, didn't know if I was gonna get knifed or die or whatever. I had double vision and forgot everything I used to know. So I had to relearn everything when I got out of prison. And um, so where was it going with this? Uh,
0: talking about, you know, you took everything oh, off. Oh,
1: yeah. Know. And, I- and uh, so the second to last journey I went out in, in solitude by myself instead of helping other people heal. Cause that's what I've started doing was getting people over fear and I've changed people's lives and, and I feel like it's my purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm not dealing with me. Mm-hmm. So the second to last time I go out and dealt with just me mm-hmm. and I'm sitting out with my arms crossed by the pool and I'm looking out protecting this property as the warrior does. Yeah. And I'm not, see, I'm not small anymore. Mm-hmm. I see myself as a giant. Yeah, you're mighty, and I and yeah. I'm not afraid of anybody or anything, and yeah. everybody around me knows that. I and I, you know, in the cars, when people want to mess with, I put these. I have these hands that is bigger than yours. Yeah, yeah. And, and I put What's this out the window, and I say, it's "You want it? It, It's like this is who I am right here. You want yeah. to mess with this hand, and that's yeah. you're gonna get behind it. Mm. And uh, so mm. um, I saw my ancestors while I was out there, and they told me the story about we were warriors and we fought each other. We came together. We produced you own yourself as now my dragon tattoo. Mm -hmm. So now I'm known as the dragon warriors. He said, you are a warrior and we live through you Mm -hmm. and we honor you for your courage and your strength to survive. All this is of whatever stature you think you are. You're a giant. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, that's when my writing started. I mean, I used to write stuff and it was like, yeah, okay, it's all right, but it's now it's just notes for me to to really write. Yeah. The passion comes out of me. The prison is no longer an issue. It's a strength. It's a story that I want to share with people because you can go through some serious shit in life, and then nothing needs to keep you down. That's right. And that's that's kind of my my story. Is like if you can go through all this, I mean, people go through worse, but I've thrown a lot of bad stuff, mm. and uh, I just. Use it as experience to share with other people and, and heal people, mm. in love, and that's that's what you do, and that's why you're such a cool dude. <laughs>
0: thanks, thanks, Larry. Yeah, I will never forget sitting right next to you, you know, and you're like, "Who are you?" <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> I'm, you know, it was like, oh, yeah." You, as you know, also, and I know, in our own unique way, to sniff out it all. Yeah. All of it, all 100 yep. percent of any all,
1: any all of the it. bullshit. All of yeah. it, yes.
0: And so I'll never forget that moment. I'm like, you look at me, and I shake your hand, and like,
1: yeah, it's like, yeah, who, I'm here. Who, who the, yeah. <laughs> You're like, at, at, at first, I went, "Who the fuck is this?" Guy? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I was like, put our hands over each other in that circle, yeah. guys. That was amazing. I have never done that in life. I've yeah. never had guy friends. I had like a guy here and there, whatever, never a group of guys. And the group that we made from that night has healed me and made me so much more. So cool. It's cool. I love life now. It's just fascinating to me. Yeah. So, and you're, you're saying to me, looking over at me, said, we should do something with this. We should make a movie. Who the the hell is this guy? (laughs) But you know, you said it with authority, like, I looked over at Jason, like, because I know Jason, the firefighter, and yeah. he's like, Yeah, he's for real. And I went, Wow. And I felt your energy at that mm. moment. And it's like, then I started telling him my stories, like, mm. this guy needs to hear this. So oh I, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I have friends. Uh, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of, of getting it out. The, mm-hmm. the world is healing. Uh, the way I look at it is Rome has stolen the knowledge of the earth from every human on this planet. They have conquered and then what they did is they conquered and they burned the truth of those local areas. They they conquered the world. The entire world was conquered by Rome. Right, wiped out the indigenous truths on this entire planet and traumatized those who did not submit. They took away the plants of every culture, every peoples, every tribe, every tongue, Everyone
1: came the bro- the the, the, grew up with the plants. The, the, right. the and Romans destroyed the humans.
0: They dist- it's either human or Roman. Right. Yeah. That's the two sides that we're on right now. Roman being the reptilian. Human yep. hue, a shade of light, the light beans or right. the reptilian beings on this planet. And this is not to attack catholic people this is to say the mechanism the machinery the borg the insidious unsatiable machine on this plane this realm this 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 time and dimension that will take everything from you and even say at your deathbed you still better say a prayer because you're not sure they have stolen everything from humanity And here to see you and I and all these beautiful beings, beautiful. I mean, I have chills right now. Just incredible humans coming together right now to love. And truly, you don't have to say God. It is the love of God. You don't have to say like, you know, it is God. God is here moving and touching. Let
1: let me tell you something real quick. Yeah. When I was 10 years old, I walked out of. Cat, what a catechism, whatever they call that. Uh-huh. I was pissed that I had to crayon Jesus, and, and I couldn't sit in the cool room with all the neat windows and the organ. Mm. So I walked five miles home in Shelburne, Vermont. I just walked home, and that was the last time I, you know, religion to me is just a way of people controlling people and hurting people and wars and all. But until I heard you speak about religion the way you do, mm. I can I can speak to it now. It's not like. A bad word to me, like it's not just the religion people practice. It's God is not that. It is all of us.
0: Yes, man, it's I'm all sure of us. right now. I do. It's cool. It is so cool. There is uh there's this old preacher, A.W. Tozer, and I've said this quote many times on this podcast. And you, this is I might have even shared this with you because it affirms everything you've shared in this podcast. He said, "A man with an experience." is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Right. With an experience. I love that. Ever at the mercy of a man with an argument and what religion of the system, the Romanistic reptilian inhuman system, the sadists that guard the inmates, which is like, who's, who's the real, who's the sicko, right? Yeah. This system, they have, made it argumentative argumentative they're trying to convince every person but they have no experience themselves so they not can stand say i not only went into the fire and stood in the fire and i can tell you what fire is versus yeah. don't touch that that's fire it's like you don't know yeah. you
1: don't know yeah right there's this all this I just i
0: read the satanic everything from It's all the spiritual texts of every because I came from this verbal assassin because after my I had to hold on to something so I held on to this thing I could hold on to which was Christianity in the form that I was able to hold on to but then I like became a because I was so angry just an assassin verbal assassin every single person because I was still trying to protect like don't don't hurt me anymore so I was just hurting people in the name of love, in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of salvation, right. in the name of whatever it was, until I was like, wow, I'm just as broken as every other person. And I really need to heal and to see the, to see the beauty, the oneness, the, the oneness, but also like the painting behind you, the fractals of light that are all huge hues of light, the, the beauty of this, this existence. Yeah come from the healing and the vulnerability and the strength. And we're all giants when we understand we're giants, you know, we're all, they make us feel small. It doesn't matter. I'm six or I'm not even big compared to what another seven foot giant. giants are nothing compared to the Titans that walked the earth at one time. Like, right. Right. So there's always, but the presence that we can bring supersedes any physical material thing it's like and this is the truth of who we are and it's so beautiful to see you and
1: you know the uh, an open mind can't be controlled hmm. so that's it
0: that's it yeah and an open heart can't be
1: can't be broken
0: can't be broken can't be stopped
1: right <laughs> right. right and that's what's so cool about this little group of guys we have right now hmm. we all feel the same way and i think together hey, we're warriors on a new path. Yes. Yes. To heal, heal the earth. I mean, I, how far can we go? I'm looking for purpose. Yeah. I like this. I like this one.
0: Well, I'll, I'll have to share how far we can go. I have shared this with my wife and, and my closest friends. I'm going all the way. That's yeah. what I'm here for. I'm going. The one thing you can count on me is whoever listens. I'm going all the way. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, There's a quote that I have um, behind me. Something that came to me years ago is that darkness is not a counterforce to light. Darkness exists in the absence of light. And the Romanistic system wants us to say, accept darkness. And I'm not talking about shadow work we need to shadow and understand, but I'm talking about darkness, the absence of light. And we're taught that it's just the way it is. And no, we are the light. And I will not stop until there is no more crooks, crannies, crevices, doors, secrets, underground, basements, in the closets, all the things. We must bring light to it all so we all can heal and come together and realize, wow. And what's so beautiful is you with your story is the story. We don't have a modern day Rocky. We have a fictional story of Rocky. Right. But but what I've talked about this many times on the podcast is that Hollywood, the the Roman system has given us false senses of heroes, superheroes, fake fictional heroes. But the world is looking for real heroes, men and women who have said, and I was (laughs) and now I am, you know, like I've gone through this.
1: Right.
0: And you're you are a hero. You're a warrior hero, brother.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that it means a lot to me Yeah, yeah we're glad are gladiators of love now yes we How are about that
0: yes we are yes we are I'll have yeah, to tell I mean you
1: that in a complete way
0: yeah I will I'll tell you uh just as we close um talking about love I was on a heroic dose of of psilocybin and I was journeying by myself sacred and, and t- intention and and um and I heard God tell me it's time call the law of love on the earth. And I was like, okay. And so I slammed my hand into the ground and I the earth is now under the law of love. And I felt light shoot through my hand through every tunnel cra- <laughs> crap, like everything, the law of love now supersedes on this earth. And this is only a year and a half ago. And all of a sudden I traveled, I've never seen beans of any type. I've always seen like, God's perspective of humans, but also, and I travel in all of this tunnel and there's this giant, maybe 24 foot four-legged reptile looking creature. I can draw it out. I can see it right now. Yeah. And it backed up all the way into where it couldn't back up anymore.
1: Cool. And
0: I look at it and it looks at me and it doesn't want to leave. And I said, you can't stay here. You have to go. Well, wow. and it left. It like vanished in this. That-
1: I love
0: that. We <laughs> are the gladiators of love to go and just, that's what I mean. Like, doesn't matter where they're trying to hide,
1: right? We're
0: here. We are here now.
1: There's no one too tough to tackle either. No, you no, know? no.
0: I love you, brother. I really do. <laughs> I just,
1: I'm so glad I met you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you just... change, you're changing my life. Dude. This is really cool. <laughs> it's
0: cool. I got chills in <laughs> my back. I just, um, I, I, <laughs>
1: I I got your back. I got your side. I got your front, whatever it takes.
0: I know you do, man. I have seen you. I love you, everyone. I just want you to know that this beautiful man is, uh, is someone that you can look to. And when your book comes out and when your story is told on a broader scale, than even my small imprint on this realm, it is going to be spectacular. So thank you, brother, for being having the courage to, to
1: share it. Thanks for saying so. I love you, brother. <laughs> love you too.
0: Brother Larry, thank you again for coming on. And everyone, it just shows you, it doesn't matter where you are, how old you are, how young you are, doesn't matter. There is always the opportunity to heal, always the opportunity to go in, always the opportunity to face that which you need to face, to un- chain yourself from the past and to free yourself in the infinite and unconditional love of God. This is our time. This is your time. I hope you're just basking in this. There is nothing that you cannot receive in this moment. There is nothing that you cannot walk in, live in, breathe in. All the people that are haters, all the angry, judgmental, vindictive, all these people there, it's just noise. That's fading away. As you, step into your purpose, as you step into your calling, as you step in and walk in the love of God. God loves you, loves you. And it is our job to do the inner work, to open back up our hearts so that we can receive that love. The only thing blocking us from the love of God is not God. It is us. And it takes us to go in, find the courage, open back up, and receive. That's the beauty of this whole journey, brothers and sisters. That's what we're here to find and explore. And it is beautiful. And, Brother Larry, you are beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Everyone, please like, rate, subscribe, share, spread the word. The Golden World Revolution is moving throughout the world. All over the world, people are listening to this podcast. You are one of them. You are a light bearer. You are a light bringer. You are a light worker and i bless you all i'm lucas mack this is the golden Rule revolution and i'll talk to you on the next episode thank you brothers and sisters for listening for support in your journey go to my website lucasmack.com